Psalm 8, it's on page 450 in the Pew Bibles. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. Good morning. How's everybody doing? I, uh, super. God bless you, Chris. I, I had a joke about the weather, too, and then Manfred uh, came and stole my thunder, but I, I'm going to use it anyway, because I think mine's funnier than his. <laughs> no, that's not true. But I did hear someone say that weather, that winter in Chicago is a little bit like uh, or springtime in Chicago is a little bit like when you're arguing with someone and they storm out of the house, but then they come back and they say, and they say one more thing. <laughs> and I think that's probably an apt description of the weather in Chicago. So anyway, Palm Sunday, though, uh, it's Palm Sunday, whether it rains, snows, or shines. And we're going to take a break uh, from our study of Hebrews throughout a Holy Week. And we're going to focus in on the narrative of the Lord's uh, last week of his life. And so uh, throughout, uh, starting today and then uh, with Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and then Easter Sunday, we're going to step back from our sermon series in Hebrews, which we'll pick up again uh, the following week. But Christians all over the world have traditionally uh, celebrated Holy Week as a, as a means of commemorating Jesus's last week of life. It's a chance to retrace the footsteps of Jesus, to to walk with him through his entry into Jerusalem, which is what we celebrate today at Palm Sunday. Then his last supper with his disciples on Monday, Thursday, his arrest and his crucifixion on Good Friday, and then most significantly and gloriously, his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Depending on your tradition, Holy Week may be a thing uh, for you, or it may not be a thing. Some Christian traditions have made a tradition of not celebrating Christian traditions, which is its own kind of interesting tradition. And maybe you come uh, from that kind of a Christian uh, tradition where observances like Lent and Holy Week or Advent were not celebrated because these were seen as just tradition. But yes, though they're traditions, so are birthdays and anniversaries and the 4th of July, and most of us don't have problems with celebrating these things. 
Husbands, if you were to try that excuse on your wife for your anniversary or her birthday, I suspect that the it's just tradition would not work very well. And so the church has established traditions, just like countries and cultures and individual families establish traditions to help commemorate and remember the important things that we celebrate and believe. And so that's what Holy Week is. It's, it's living into the rhythm of Jesus's life all the way from his birth through Lent, through Holy Week, and ultimately culminating with Easter. So Easter is the high watermark of the Christian's liturgical calendar year. And so this is a great uh, privilege we have to celebrate together as a church, uh, Christ's Holy Week culminating with Easter. But today is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday celebrates Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem just one week before his crucifixion. It's when he presents himself to the people as their long-awaited Messiah and King. It's the dramatic turn in the climax of the gospel narratives. And the kingship of Jesus is the theme of Palm Sunday. It's what we've been singing about, crown him with many crowns and Hosanna to the son of David. The kingship of Jesus is the focus of Palm Sunday. It's going to be the focus of our sermon this morning. We're going to look at two texts Matthew 21, 7 through 16, which we read uh, as part of our worship leading up uh, to the preaching. So we're going to read that text and focus on that text. And then also Psalm 8, which we've had read for us. When I was uh, working up the sermon title and uh, the text earlier this week, I actually thought I was going to spend more time in Psalm 8 and give a nod to Matthew 21. But as I got going, I reversed that. So we're going to spend majority of our time in Matthew 21 and then finish up with our conclusion in Psalm 8. So Matthew 21, uh, 5 through 17 will be where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. So let me encourage you to, to turn there in your Bible. You can keep your uh, finger in Psalm 8. We'll end up there. But Matthew 21 is where we're going to spend our time. And here's the question I want to put to the text and to us this morning as we consider Jesus' kingship and his triumphal entry. What kind of person benefits from and receives the blessing of Jesus' kingship? What kind of person benefits from and receives the blessing of Jesus' kingship? And in particular, in Matthew 21, I want to focus our attention in on the temple scene the end of that passage, and contrast the responses of those who meet Jesus in the temple. There are going to be folks that encounter Jesus in the temple. We want to look at the responses of these people and see the answer to our question, what kind of people benefit and receive blessing from Jesus' kingship? Okay, so Matthew 21. And uh, let me give us a running start here, some of the context that leads into this passage so that we know kind of what's been going on. Jesus throughout the Gospels and throughout Matthew's Gospel, has been largely staying away from Jerusalem. From the time that he begins his public ministry and the time that it becomes controversial, so that he begins to make powerful enemies in the ruling party in Jerusalem, the Jewish uh, religious ruling party, Jesus begins to spend most of his time out in the countryside, away from Jerusalem. He doesn't want to provoke a confrontation with the Jewish leaders. But now, after being gone for probably a couple years, he makes his way into Jerusalem, right into the very seat 
of his enemy's power, the temple itself. And it's the time of the Passover, Matthew tells us, the gospel writers tell us. It's one of the high holy days of the Jewish year. And not only has the temple swelled uh, because of those that live in and around Jerusalem, but Jews have pilgrimaged from all over the Roman Empire to come into Jerusalem to, to celebrate the sacrificial blood of the Passover lamb. And so Jesus has chosen this time to ride into the heart of Jerusalem all the way into the temple. And Jesus is very much aware of the messianic prophecy that says that the king of Israel will come to his people riding on a donkey. So Matthew records for us in verse 5 this prophetic word about Israel's long-awaited king. Say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the Jews have been taught by their prophetic words to look for the king coming humble on a donkey. And Jesus, as he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he chooses a donkey to, to, to proclaim himself to be the king. This is not as though Jesus was just looking to ride into Jerusalem and his feet were tired and so he asked his disciples to find him some transportation and they found a donkey. Jesus has chosen the donkey specifically as a fulfillment of the prophecy. And so when he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, he is self-consciously on purpose presenting himself to the people as their king. If you read the Gospels carefully, especially Mark's Gospel, but all the Gospels, Jesus is very discreet and coy about his identity up to this point. When he's alone with his disciples or perhaps with an individual, he might declare himself to be the long-awaited Messiah. But when he's out in public and he's teaching publicly or he's questioned by the religious leaders, he will not admit to or be straight about his identity because he knows that to do so will provoke a confrontation. It'll force a conflict with the Jewish religious leaders. But here he comes in making a bold statement that he is indeed the long-awaited king. He hasn't spoken a word in Matthew 21 when he rides in, but the message is loud and clear. And the, the crowds understand what he is saying. They spread their cloaks on the ground as a sign of respect. They put palm branches on the ground, which is why it's called Palm Sunday. They wave palm branches. And they begin to say, Hosanna to the son of David. They're affirming his royal identity. David, of course, was the great Jewish king, the greatest of the Jewish kings, and God had made a covenant with David that, that one of David's sons would rise to sit upon the throne in Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem would extend his reign to all the nations in the world. But David's line came to an end almost 600 years before his house had fallen. And so the faithful and the righteous Jews had looked forward to the day when God would resurrect the line of David and put one of David's sons upon the throne to rule from Jerusalem. And so as Jesus is riding in to Jerusalem, the crowds think that perhaps they have at last found this long-awaited king. Jesus rides into the temple then, the center of Jewish worship. You note the first thing he does in verse 12 is he drives out the, uh, the money changers that are there. We could focus and linger on the money changers, but 
we won't want to spend time here, but suffice to say that these are folks that have been working in the temple that are fleecing the people in many ways. They're under the authority of the scribes and the priests who we'll meet in a moment. Uh, and they're not using the temple as an opportunity to bless the people, but rather to take from the people. So Jesus drives them out. But then I want to draw our attention now here and slow down in our narrative in verse 14. Jesus has driven out the money changers, and then look who comes to him in the temple. The blind and the lame come to him in the temple. Jesus was known for his healing ministry. He was doing amazing uh, miracles. And so fame, his fame had spread all throughout Israel and the land and surrounding areas. But if you were blind or you were lame and you lived in Jerusalem, how, how could you access him? You didn't know where he was. But you would hear rumors of him. He was there, and then he was in Galilee, and then he was in Capernaum. But, how, but now he's ridden into Jerusalem itself. And imagine yourself in that situation as one of the sick or the blind or the lame. Medicine in those days wasn't doing anyone much good. It was a very primitive science. If you had got sick in those days and they didn't know what to do with you, they'd put leeches all over you. Thank God for 21st century medicine. But imagine you were stricken with some incurable ailment, blind even, and you catch word that Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem and he's at the temple. You'd make your way to the temple to receive his healing and his blessing. You would do whatever you could to get to him. And that's what happened. The blind and the lame come to him and he heals them there in the temple. But look who else has come into the temple as well. The children have come into the temple. We don't know whose children these are. Perhaps they're the children of the parents that were out in the streets proclaiming Jesus to be the son of David. Perhaps these children have heard their parents. Or perhaps these are the street children that just run through the streets. Perhaps these are orphans. But in any case, it doesn't seem that the crowds have followed Jesus into the temple. But the blind and the lame and the children have followed Jesus into the temple. And the children are praising God, and the lame, no doubt, and the blind are praising God. And so Jesus is doing wonderful things. So on the positive side, these are the ones who are eager to see Jesus and welcome his arrival, the lame, the blind, and the children. That's who's happy that Jesus has come into the temple. But then there are the scribes and the chief priests, Matthew doesn't say that they followed him into the temple. They weren't out in the streets, swept up in the enthusiasm, and have followed the crowds into the temple. They live in the temple. The temple is their place of occupation. It's the seat of their power. The temple is their house. They were already there. And this self-proclaimed king has strolled into their building, upending their commerce, and bringing in his train the outcasts of society. And they're not happy that Jesus has come into the temple. They see, Matthew tells us in verse 15, they see the wonderful things that he is doing. And they see the children praising him. But they don't think the wonderful things are wonderful. Instead, Matthew tells us that their response is that they're indignant. As I was reading through this and studying through this passage, that that response of indignancy, it's, it's, it stuck out to me. I don't know that I had noticed it quite 
in that way before. And it intrigued me that they're not angry, they're not afraid, they're not threatened, they're not defiant, they're indignant. What are they indignant? Like, what does that mean, indignant? And I, so I dug a little deeper into the actual Greek word that we've translated here as indignant, and it turns out it means indignant. <laughs> so, so that wasn't much help. Um, so then I went back to thinking about what does the English word mean, indignant? And here's what it means. It means taking offense because you think someone is getting or seeking for something good that they don't deserve, all right? That's what it means to be indignant, right? You see someone who's seeking for or receiving something positive that you don't think they merit, that you don't think that they deserve. So like James and John, this happens earlier in Matthew's gospel, James and the mother of James and John goes to Jesus and asks if James and John, her two sons, can have the right and the left hand of the throne in the kingdom of heaven. And the other disciples are indignant because who are they, James and John, to think that they should get the right and the left hand? They're indignant that they're seeking something good that they don't deserve. Well, it's one thing to be indignant at James and John because after all, who are they to set themselves above their fellow disciples? But to be indignant at Jesus. Just let that sink in for a moment. If there's one person in the whole of existence who you should never, ever be indignant at, it's Jesus. Because he deserves every bit of the good, of the praise and the privilege that he's given. And then some. Human beings don't even possess the praise to extol the greatness and the goodness of Jesus. And do you see the irony here? Do you see the real blindness here? The religious leaders who more than anyone else in the city should have recognized who Jesus was. I mean, that was their job. They were the scribes and the priests. It was their job to know the prophetic writings, to understand the prophetic writings, and to prepare the people for Messiah's coming. That was their job. If there's anyone who should have seen that Jesus was worthy of the praise that he was receiving, it should have been them. But they were blind to Jesus' true worth. The lame and the blind and the children all see Jesus for who he is. But the powerful and the wise look down their noses at Jesus and do not think he is worthy of praise. Jesus is received by and blesses the weak and the vulnerable, but is rejected by and rejects the strong and the powerful. And here's the takeaway I would suggest for us from this text this morning. We cannot receive the benefits of Jesus' kingship from a position of power but only from a position of vulnerability and weakness. If we think that we have everything that we need, we're not in a position to receive what Jesus has to bring. It's only when we are acutely aware of our need for Jesus that we will be able to recognize Jesus for who he is, as the sovereign king who comes to give bountifully. 
But admitting our weakness and our vulnerability is so hard. It is so hard. Our entire culture, and here I guess we could expand it and not just make it sound like this is something just 21st century North America, but the entire human existence, the history of our collective memory eschews weakness. We're taught from a very early age that to be vulnerable, to be weak, is to be worthless. We're taught that to admit vulnerability is to be abused and taken advantage of, to be overlooked. And tragically, that is so often the case. In a world that is under the sway of dark powers, justice is often tragically just an illusion. And the powers that are supposed to protect us so often use that power to take advantage of us. If you remember perhaps back to your elementary school years or your uh, middle school years, the, uh, the history of the Peloponnesian War, the conflict between Sparta and Athens. And it wasn't just Sparta and Athens that were duking it out with each other. The, they divvied up the whole uh, Greek-speaking world of the time and, and they divided the people into two empires. And there was the Spartan Empire and there was the Athenian Empire. And these two empires were at war with each other. And Athens was determined that they were going to bring all of the Greek islands under their sway. But there was one island, the island of Miletus, that, that didn't want to get involved in the conflict. They wanted to remain neutral. And so they, uh, they said, we're going to stay out of it. But Athens was determined to bring them in to the fold. And so they sent an army to the island. And the Miletans said, hey, listen, we're not going to fight. We're not going to take a side. Uh, it's a breach of justice for you to come and attack us unprovoked. We have not fought against you. And listen to the response of the Athenians. Sobering uh, and disturbingly true with how power functions so often in our world. This is what the Athenians say. They say, for our part, we will not make a long speech no one would believe, nor find moral arguments claiming that our empire is justified because we defeated the Persians or that we are coming against you for an injustice you have done to us. And we don't, we don't want you to think you can persuade us by saying that you did not fight on the side of the Spartans in the war or that you have done us no injustice. Instead, let us work out what we can do on the basis of what both sides truly expect. And now listen to what they say. We both know that decisions about justice are made in human discussions only when both sides are under equal compulsion. But when one side is stronger, the strong take as much as they can get and the weak suffer what they must. And they go on to say, we're strong, you're weak, we're taking what we want. And they don't even pretend that there's justice involved. Justice, they say, is only when their two powers are equal and can defend their territory. Then, you, then there's justice, which of course really isn't justice. And we live in this world where tragically that's how power so often works. And so it's no wonder, having seen this these abuses of justice and misuses of power in our own individual lives, in culture, in the whole history of the world is back as far as our collective memory goes. It's no wonder that we work so hard to overcome our vulnerability and to hide our weakness. One sense is perfectly understandable. But 
But, and yet, it is only by admitting our vulnerability and our weakness that we're able to receive the protective strength of Jesus' covering kingship. Jesus doesn't come to the strong and powerful. He comes to the weak and to the vulnerable. And he doesn't extend his protective covering over those who don't need it, though we all need it. He he extends his protective covering over those who realize they need it. In the same way that we must first own our sin before we can receive God's grace, we must first own our weakness before we are able to receive God's strength. How hard is it for you this morning to acknowledge your vulnerability and your weakness? I think this is difficult for all of us. This is difficult for all of us, but I think it's especially difficult for some of us. Perhaps that's because of your own, your personality type, just the way you came into the world, you've got a strong personality and, and the strength of your personality it, it just doesn't easily move to places of weakness and vulnerability. Perhaps it's because, and I think this could be true for many of us, it's because of past painful experiences. Because we have received misuses of power in our vulnerability and our weakness. And we've said never again, never again. Maybe even in ways that we don't consciously realize, but we've refused those parts of our lives that are vulnerable and weak because we don't want to be hurt again. But in cutting ourselves off from our vulnerability and our weakness, we cut ourselves off from God's protective power in our lives through Christ. Let me give you three questions that you can mull over a little bit to perhaps self-assess whether or not it's how it is, how easy it is for you to acknowledge your vulnerability and your weakness. First question, how easy is it for you to admit that you don't know the answer? Are you one of those kind of people that just always has to have it figured out? You always know what's going on. Even when you don't know what's going on, you just always know what's going on, right? I think this can be especially difficult uh, for preachers and pastors because our job is to know what's going on. Our job is to provide the answers. There was a a radio program, I don't even know if it's still on, but but Hank Hanegraaff, he was the Bible answer man, right? I mean, this is what we do. We we study the Bible and we provide answers. But sometimes the reality is, as preachers, we don't know the answers. And it can be difficult to acknowledge that. I was reading uh, Frederick Buechner uh, he a, was a pastor and then also a writer and a novelist. And he, uh, he wrote these words, which really spoke to me. Maybe they'll speak to you. He's writing uh, as a pastor to pastors about the need to admit uh, that we don't know the answer at times. But I think it would have relevance to you in your own situation too. But listen to this. He says, if the pastor does not make real to his congregation the human experience of what it is to cry into the storm and receive no answer to be sick at heart and find no healing, then he becomes the only one there who seems not to have had that experience because most surely under their bonnets and shawls and jackets, under their afros and ponytails, all the others there have had it whether they talk of it or not. As much as anything else, it is their experience of the absence of God that has brought them there in search of his presence. And if the preacher does not speak of that and to that, then he becomes like the captain captain of a ship who is the only one aboard who either does not know that the waves are 20 feet high and the decks awash or will not face up to it. 
I think the reality is when we won't acknowledge that there are times when we just don't know. We don't allow ourselves and our weakness to come to the surface and say that we, don't, that we just don't know. We, we not only insulate ourselves from the protective uh, covering that Jesus would provide, but we also insulate ourselves from ministering to people who also don't know. And if you've ever talked to someone who always knows the right answer, that's not the person you go to when you need the answer, right? You go to people who are real and who are honest and can enter into their own weakness, right? So perhaps you have it hard to admit that you don't know the answer. Another question, how easy is it for you to ask for help from people? Emphasis on people. So I think as Christians, this is one of like the moves that Christians can make. If you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, you, you get exempt from this critique. But if you're a Christian here, this is one of the moves that we can make is we'll ask God for help, but we won't ask people for help. It reminds me a little bit of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He made some comments about confession. And he says, it's one thing to confess your sins to God. It's another thing to confess your sins to people. He says, the person who who is confessing his sins to God but won't confess his sins to people probably isn't confessing his sins to God because it takes humility and exposure of ourselves to confess our sins to people. In the same way, it's one thing to ask God for help, to kind of keep our vulnerability all tucked up just between us and God. But God doesn't minister to us all the time just between him and I. He ministers to us through his body. And there are times when if we would want God's help, we're going to have to expose our need and our vulnerability to the body of Christ because the body of Christ is the means by, way, the means by which Christ extends his help. How easy is it for you to accept help that you feel like you haven't earned? Right? So you, 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 you're willing to accept help but you only want to accept help that you feel like you've merited in some way. I'll let you drive my kids because I've driven your kids. I'll do the pickup because you've done the pickup. I'll, I'll take some benevolence because I've given some benevolence, right? Like I'm only going to take what I've given, right? And pride stands in the way of our capacity just to receive God's help. I do see this in our church, particularly on the issue of benevolence, People here give so generously. We take the offering the first uh, uh, Sunday of the month and, and invite people to give uh, benevolence offerings. So many of you do so graciously. And we have twenty dollars to $30,000, I don't know what it is, sitting in an account right now, right? And then as pastors or elders, we'll encounter people out in the congregation who are desperate financial straits and we'll say, hey, we have benevolence money that people have given to help. And oh, no, I just, I just wouldn't feel right about taking it. I wouldn't feel right about taking it. Right? And we let our pride stand in the way of being willing to receive help that we feel like we haven't merited in some way. Or they'll say, well, I'll take it, but I promise to pay it back. I promise to pay it back. The idea of a free gift is just something that we have a hard time accepting. But God is asking us to just put our weakness, our need, our vulnerability out to receive grace and help. To deny your weakness and vulnerability, to deny and cover up your neediness, to insist that you are strong and powerful is to play the part of the blind scribe and the chief priests. 
in your self-perceived strength, you are rejecting the kingship of Jesus. Where in your life do you need to stop pretending that you are self-sufficient, that you are strong enough to care for yourself, and instead need to get honest with Jesus and his people about your vulnerability and your need? Perhaps it's your marriage. Perhaps it's your parenting, your singleness, your job, your sin. These places where we know that we are not making it. We're trying in our own strength and we're coming up short. And and so we need God's help. But receiving God's help is going to require us to admit our weakness and our need. The call to acknowledge our weakness is not a call to falsely make ourselves weak or to needlessly expose ourselves to tyranny as though there was some merit in being taken advantage of. Jesus certainly didn't do that. He stayed away from places where he knew he might get himself into trouble until the time was right and God had specifically led them. Jesus himself tells us to be innocent like doves but to be as wise as serpents. We're not to go around and try to create need where there isn't need. We're called to go around just acknowledging simply and truly that as human beings, we are vulnerable and we have need. This morning, the Lord calls us, I think, to simply acknowledge the fact that we are all, each of us, weak and in need of the strength that God provides. The blind and the lame were healed in their weakness, but the priests and the scribes were cast out in their strength. There's no glory ultimately given to strength. God's glory comes to the weak and to the needy. So if you came here this morning weak and vulnerable, then leave this morning encouraged. God's power is made perfect in weakness, and he will not forget or neglect those who entrust themselves to him. But if you came this morning strong and self-reliant, then leave this morning warned because God's wisdom shames the wise and he has come to humble those who set themselves up in a false kind of strength. There was one time, thinking about this idea of indignancy, there was one time when Jesus himself was indignant If you remember what that was, you'd have to be an astute reader or have a good memory. But in the gospel accounts, Jesus was himself indignant one time. It was when the disciples didn't allow the children to come to him. You remember this? The the children want to come to Jesus, but the disciples say, no, the children are not worthy of receiving the time and attention, the blessing of Jesus. And dignity kind of runs in the other direction then. And Jesus says, no, they are worthy of receiving something good from me, my blessing. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the children, Jesus says, because the children, because children are shameless in admitting their need of heaven's king. It takes us back then into closing to Psalm 8. The, fair, the, uh, the uh, religious leaders, the scribes and the The priests, they rebuke Jesus because of the children's blessing. And they say, do you hear what they're saying? They're calling you the the son of David. Tell them to stop. 
And Jesus not only does not tell them to stop, he says they're right, but it's interesting how he affirms the rightness. He quotes from Psalm 8. So go back to Psalm 8. It's page 450 in your pew Bible if you want to jump over there. But in Psalm 8, Verse 2, Jesus, Jesus quotes from, Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And Jesus is saying, listen, the babes, the infants, they know better how to speak of who God is and to give praise than you wise and, and learned. But Jesus is doing something even more here. He's He's not just saying that babes know better how to speak, but he's taking it a step further and he's revealing a deeper truth about his identity. Because Psalm 8 isn't on its surface a messianic psalm. Psalm 8 isn't referring to Messiah directly. Psalm 8 is referring to Yahweh, the creator God. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord. This first Lord that is said here is Yahweh. It's the name of God himself, the creator of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens and out of the mouths of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes. And Jesus, in quoting Psalm 8, is connecting himself to the praise that the psalmist gives to Yahweh, the Lord of all creation. Jesus is not only the long-awaited son of David, but beyond imagination, he is also the Lord of all creation. And he is truly worthy of our praise. He is God and King, the long-awaited son of David. Let us rejoice in his greatness with simplicity and faith and trust, dropping our pretenses of strength and power and self-autonomy but to receive without guile, like dependent children, Jesus, the glorious one, the crowned one, as our king. Amen? God, we thank you. You've given us Jesus. We acknowledge this morning, Lord, that we are each in our own ways, weak, vulnerable, in need. Some of us we feel it sometimes more acutely than others, but even the strongest and most independent of us here this morning, if we will look with honesty at our lives, we will see that we are frail. That is, we are one heartbeat away from it stopping every moment of our lives. And we have no strength in and of ourselves to navigate all the complexities of this life, nor do we have strength to navigate the life to come. We come to you this morning, God, I pray that you would give us capacity to come to you this morning as children in faith and trust and humility, without shame, open about our need and receive from you the blessings of Jesus' kingship. We pray this in his name. Amen.